despite the despite what's happening in and around us and you know we've heard this morning about distractions and uncertainty and being shaken and all of that it's uh you know so some are even afraid anxious about the things that are happening and you know we saw the awful news uh a couple weeks ago which has transpired and now there's these videos out about you know this young man that was just killed in memphis and it's brutal. It's like, what words do we have when we see these things? And I have said this before. I have said it before. I have said it multiple times, and I will say it again today, and I will keep saying this. I will keep saying this as long as I have the privilege of being able to stand up here and there's breath in my lungs uh, I, I back in May of 2020, I, I believe I've said this is going to be almost word for word what I said, and we we see these awful things, and it's evil. People who are supposed to be protecting, and they're not. And the only the only solution for this, the only the only solution, the only instrument that can work out any reconciliation of classes and people who, for whatever reason, they think they're better than another person, nationalities, people of all kinds. How can, it, how can they be harmonized? How can there be any harmonization of all the anger and the controversies? And uh, what is the only way to quell evil in the world what's the only way to call evil around us it is the cross of jesus christ it doesn't matter if someone says they're good or whatever they it's got to be jesus it's the only way the only way the only way is to come to jesus read about the the, the man who wrote Three quarters of the New Testament. He breathed out murderous threats against people he hated. He stood over murders. And then it all changed. And he found love for people that he had previously hated. Come to Jesus. It's necessary. It is necessary for all. For all. It's the only way we could say things like, his plans are good for us is if we first have come to him. Now we sing those songs, but it's about people who can say they love the Lord and they're called. These are, these are about the body that we heard as we opened the, the service. It's about the body of Christ. It's the only way, the only way to, to quell anything of evil, to, to get rid of the uncertainty to say I can stand and I won't be shaken because I know my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. Necessary for all. We're going to talk some about that today. Last week I spoke to you all about the state of the church, this local church. I had this little framework that I used and it was uh, a book that I had recently 
came upon and read, and it was an old book called In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? Written by a pastor named Charles Sheldon, and he was a pastor in Topeka, Kansas. He wrote this in 1896, and the story was all about a pastor, a pastor who had preached a message, and then he was changed by it. That message that the pastor preached in the story came from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. I shared it last week. I'll share it again. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. As Christians, that's our call. That is our duty to follow in his steps. In the story, a tragic event occurred that uh, caused this pastor to rethink what he had preached about following in the steps of Jesus. And he ended up putting a challenge before his congregation. If you want to follow in the steps of Jesus, make every single decision with reference to Christ and what he would do if he were standing in your shoes for every decision, big or small. This was the pastor's challenge. What would Jesus do? She said, come to the conclusion, then just do it. Now, I was around, and I believe many of you here were around in the, the 90s. I think it was the late 90s. The, the, the What Would Jesus Do movement, WWJD, uh, is what it got shortened to. It was an abbreviation. And it sort of was a fad that came and went. And I believe for most, it really didn't leave that much of an impact. For some, I'm... Sure it did. Those who truly, truly took this thought and idea to heart and used it to guide their life. But for most, I don't think it left really much of an indelible mark at all. In this book that I read by Sheldon, he imagined just a whole variety of situations about those who had accepted his challenge and then tried to apply it in their life. What would Jesus do? Now, in 1896, you know, the issues were a little different than today. They were, but some of them really could, we could parallel. There were things that we could probably project forward. And you know, I know it was a different time, different technology, all of that. Uh, but there was one example. It was a newspaper man. And he was wrestling with, well, what do I do with my advertisers? Advertising, a huge source of revenue. It is now. You, how, how does social media run? How does any digital media run? Advertising. Ads, ads, ads. Doesn't matter really what platform you're on, be it digital, be it print. Advertising, it, it, it is the oil that keeps the machine running. And uh, in 1896, it was newspapers. Today, it's online news, whatever. But the, so the example is not really far-fetched. It's pretty realistic. In the book, the, news, the newspaper guy was wrestling with, what do I do with these advertisements uh, that maybe Jesus really might not approve? And he thought, well, I don't want to break any contracts. No, I'll keep my word, but as soon as these contracts are over, I'm not obligated to renew. Should I renew the advertising for liquor, for whiskey? That was a big deal. What would Jesus do regarding that? Well, he thought the city had licensed bars and billiard halls and 
well, it was part of society, and even Christians went to some of these establishments, and he reasoned, well, hey, others accept advertising revenue from these products. Maybe it would be okay. But as he wrestled with it, and he asked this question, if I cut it, it's huge. The paper, will the paper even survive? And he paced the floor a little and then just thought, you know, I got to push that out of my head. I got to push all these questions out of my head and just stay focused. What would Jesus do? So he come to the conclusion, yeah, Jesus probably wouldn't want to advertise liquor and whiskey. And he knew his business would suffer in the near term and he'd really feel some pain. Yet he truly felt in his heart and, and he got down on his knees. There's a scene in his office. He just gave it to God and he thought, you know, God will see me through. Despite what everyone's going to think in the office, the paper's going to fail, God's going to just provide some creative ways to make this work. And so the author wanted to make a point. Following in the footsteps of Jesus is not always easy. It can come with a cost, sometimes a heavy cost. But if Christians embraced this idea, just like this character, it could be revolutionary, it could alter society. Things could change for the better. But this was a character who was a strong Christian, a guy who would get down on his knees in his office. He had a habit of prayer. He had a habit of going to the Scriptures. Now, sure, he had to wrestle with it, but he had come to a conclusion. This is what Jesus would do. He thought, this is it. In my own heart, I believe this is what he would do. But the author made another point. Sometimes a person just doesn't know. They, they, don't eat, they can't come to a conclusion. Now in the story, those in the church would said they would take this question on. They would meet after every service. They'd meet in the church library and they would just talk. They'd have a discussion about uh, what are we doing? How are we doing this? And so there's a scene in in the book where they've come together, they're encouraging one another, they're praying, they're talking about this. And one young man said, I've been puzzled several times to know just what Jesus would do. It's not always an easy question to answer. And then there was this character, an heiress. She'd inherited a fortune from her father. And she said, I can't answer the question. And others wondered too what would Jesus do if he were actually in my shoes? So it boils down to this. No one, no one can answer the question, what would Jesus do? If they first can't answer this question, what did Jesus do? Now, that wasn't the point of this story, and I don't want to take any, anything away from it, but I, that scene where these people just, they didn't know what to do, it kind of struck me. They didn't know Jesus enough to be able to say, I know what he would do, or at least I can think or project what he might do. And, and I see in our own time, in our own era, in our modern world, there are many, many, Many who've presumed to know what Jesus would do without knowing first what Jesus has done. 
And it happens in the church. It happens outside the church. Oh, Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus would do this. And it's from someone who has absolutely no, no clue what Jesus really did. What did Jesus do? I want to address that and talk about that, really take it head on. If we're to follow in the steps of Jesus, we ought to know well, where he walked and how he walked and what he did. We just can't presume, oh, well, Jesus wouldn't do that and he would do this. We need to be able to answer the question, what did Jesus do? And then we can begin to address and assess maybe what he would do. So I want to begin with some basics. What did Jesus do when it came to a claim on eternal life or eternal damnation? Because there, that, that's, the, that's the big key to all of Scripture. It's life or death. And what did Jesus do when it came to this idea of eternal life, eternal damnation? Let me put it to you another way. What did Jesus do when he met those who truly thought, well, I got this. I got to hold on eternal life. I know what I'm doing. It's all good. You know, many people, they accept this concept of life after death. Many believe it's guaranteed. Not really a big deal. It's a done deal. Yeah, there's some kind of heaven. There's going to be a nirvana in the hereafter. I'll be there. I'll be there. You know why? I'm not a bad person. I'm really pretty good. I don't deserve eternal damnation. Come on, that's really pretty heavy. I don't think I, you know me. You know I don't deserve that. What would Jesus do? He wouldn't condemn me. Really? No, no, he wouldn't judge me. But what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? I want to address a passage of Scripture and see. And it's the beginning of Luke chapter 13. And if you put a bookmark there, put your thumb there, uh, get into Luke chapter 13, I'll give you briefly a bit about the, the setting, what's happening here in this chapter 13 of the Gospel of Luke. Leading to this passage, Luke has recorded that there were great crowds following Jesus. The last location mentioned by Luke leading into 13 is that he was at the home of Martha and Mary, which is in the town of Bethany. Bethany was just a couple miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the center of Judaism. This is where the temple was, where all the worshipers would come. Now Luke had implied that Jesus had moved on from Bethany. He doesn't record where. He doesn't tell us where Jesus went. But likely, Jesus is still in some towns that are in this region called Judea, close to Jerusalem. And he's probably not gone as far north as the province of Galilee. It was Judea, and then north of Judea was Samaria, then further north was Galilee. And why could we figure Jesus was probably pretty close to Bethany or not too far in another neighboring town? Because Luke wrote 
thousands had come to him. Thousands. He's not moving too fast with thousands following him. And Luke wrote, there were so many thousands, they were trampling on one another. This is like a Black Friday event at Walmart. Jesus is in town. People are literally trampling one another to get to him. He's become popular. This is the scene. Jesus is being pressed by the masses. People contending with one another to get closer to him. Trampling one upon the other just to get within earshot of Jesus. Now Luke has mentioned this crowd several times in Luke chapter 12. Even near the close, at the, the closing verses, again, the crowd is mentioned. And now we, we open Luke 13. And it says this. Now there were some present at that time, some present, present in these crowds, present in this big surge of people. Some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. That doesn't really sound too good. Well, Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but, it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for another year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. I've brought this passage up a couple of times in the past and brought out some different points. Today, let's talk about these, these two episodes that have been brought up. Jesus was questioned about a tragic episode. He was questioned about these Galileans who had been executed on the orders of Pilate, the Roman governor. He was the Roman governor over Judea. And there was a, a sect of people that were called zealots. Uh, the zealots, they wanted to take over Rome. They wanted to overthrow Rome by force. And the zealots were said to have been formed out of Galilee. In, in, in the book of Acts, uh, there is mention of one zealot from Galilee who had, who had uh, really raised up a, a rebellion and was put down. And he, and he was a Galilean. And evidently, uh, a group of Galileans, most likely associated with the zealots, they had raised the ire of Pilate. 
Maybe they'd come into Jerusalem from Galilee to make their sacrifices. Perhaps they incited some kind of rebellion. We don't know. What we know in any case is that Pilate had them executed. And to make a point, hey, let me show you what I do with the rebels who mess with me. Their blood is mixed with their sacrifices. That's pretty harsh. He's making a statement. Now, don't mess with Rome. He was trying to make people think twice if they were going to try to do something like that. Well, some in the crowd brought up these Galileans. Now, as I mentioned, the crowd was likely Judean, not Galilean. Jesus probably hadn't gone too far from Bethany. Now, even though they were all Jews, they looked the same. They got the same kind of ancestry. The Judeans, they sort of looked down on the Galileans. Well, the the ancestry of the Galileans was kind of questionable. Maybe they weren't truly 100% Jewish. They were an uncultured people. They were unrefined. They were uneducated. They were kind of looked at as hicks. We do that. This is not unusual. It's, It's easy to look at someone who's different than you and put them down and look down upon them. But when somebody looks like you and sounds like you, well, you just come up with something different. Well, they're not as smart as me. Well, they're born over there. They're born down south or up north or whatever. Well, so I'm better. I am better than they are. This is kind of the, kind of the attitude the Judeans had over the Galileans. They were better than them. The, the Jewish leaders, they would say, no prophet comes from Galilee. Pharisees had said that. What good comes out of there? Uh, Nathaniel. Before he was called by Jesus, he's talking to his friend Philip. Philip's like, hey, I think I met the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. What does Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why is he saying that? Well, it's a town in Galilee. Nothing comes good. There's a bunch of hicks up there. So that's the general view. That's the general view The Galileans were Jews, but lesser Jews, lesser Jews. They were a class of people to look down on. And and now there's something else to think about in this account. There was a tragedy that was brought up. Hey, these these, uh, Galileans, they were executed by Pilate. When tragedies like that occurred, the, the Jewish mindset was, that was judgment because of sin. That was God's judgment. He judged, they died. They must have been sinners. It just had to be. It just had to be. And in this great crowd that's following Jesus, likely Judeans, as I said, they brought up this execution of Galileans. Now Luke does not record what they had asked Jesus. But we know Jesus' response. We know what he said. So we can infer what they might have asked. I don't know what they asked precisely, but it might have been something along the lines of, hey, Jesus, those Galilean hicks, they got what they deserved, right? They were evil sinners. 
What were they thinking? They could take on Rome? They got what they deserved. Now, ironically, Jesus is a Galilean. And he answers, you think they were worse sinners than the other Galileans? No, no, no. You got it wrong. Unless you repent, you too will perish. All of you. All. He used the word all. Now, now if we think that Jesus doesn't judge, and I, I, I believe many of you have probably heard that. I know I've heard it. Jesus don't judge. What did Jesus do? What did he do? He judged these Judeans right there, and he judged them all guilty of sin. Y'all need to repent. Now, I don't know what they were thinking, but maybe they were thinking this. We're Judeans. This Jesus, he must be just talking about the Galileans, right? Because we're better. The Judeans are better. We're above He's not talking about judging the Judeans. No, no, no. Uh, We're not the sinners in this case. Uh, But Jesus kept talking. Now he brought up another tragedy, not one they asked about. They, They brought up the Galileans. Hey, those Galileans, they were the sinners. They're the ones that deserve this. What do you think about Pilate mixing their blood up after he killed them? Well, Jesus brought up another tragedy. One they didn't mention, the Tower of Siloam that fell on 18 people, 18 unsuspecting people. Where was Siloam? Well, it was part of Jerusalem. The, the tower, we don't know what the tower was. It might have been a watchtower. It might have been part of an aqueduct pillar uh, because there was an aqueduct that brought water into the pool of Siloam. We don't know exactly what the tower was, but we do know that it fell. And it killed 18 people. And we know that Jesus took an accusation of sin against the Galileans, and he added into it Judeans. Judeans. He said, people of Jerusalem. Now, to the crowd that uh, thought tragedy was judgment for sin, Jesus asked the question, do you consider the 18 who lost their lives when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you consider them sinners? We're sinners? And all the other Judeans in Jerusalem? Well, Jesus said no, just like he had said about the previous tragedy. No, what are you, what are you thinking? What did Jesus do? He, again, he judged them all, and equally so. There wasn't, well, oh, hey, uh, oh, Philip, you're a worse sinner than Simon over here. No, no, no. You're all sinners. Y'all need to repent. He didn't qualify the sin. That wasn't the point. It wasn't the point. He didn't say, oh, the zealots are worse sinners than the unsuspecting people that the tower fell on. And I know we can get dis- get into discussions about uh, one sin being worse than another, but this really was not the point. It wasn't the context. Jesus wasn't talking about that. He said, you're all sinners. 
I'm not going to tell you there's one sin more egregious than the other, but the, the point is you, you can't hold yourself above another person and say you don't need to repent. You all need to repent. It is required. It is necessary. All of you. Jesus was making an important point. Well, it doesn't matter if you're a rebel, criminal against the, uh, the authorities of the country and trying to overthrow the country, or you're just an unwary citizen about to die from some unforeseen event. Everyone, everyone needs to repent before the day comes, before that final day comes. And then Jesus spoke the parable. He immediately brings in this parable into the context, the, the parable of the fig tree. For three years, a man has come looking uh, for fruit on his tree, and he didn't find any. So he says to the caretaker of his vineyard, cut that tree down. And a caretaker protests, no, no, hold on, leave it alone, leave it alone. One more year, give it one more year. I'll fertilize it, I'll dig around it. If it bears fruit, that'll be great, fine. But if it doesn't, then we'll cut it down. So what does the parable mean? Now, I've given interpretations to this parable. One way, though, to interpret this parable is that the vineyard owner, the, the owner of the whole thing is God, and vineyard is often associated with Israel. If you, if you read through the Bible, when this image of a vineyard comes up, it's often associated with the nation the nation of Israel. So I think the audience listening to Jesus, they might have caught on to that. Well, he's talking about us. He's talking about everybody, the whole nation. And today, today, we could take a little broader view, bringing that parable to 2023, getting it to apply in our own lives. We could recognize that the, the vineyard includes Anyone who's hearing this parable, anyone who Jesus is talking to, he's talking to you today. Anyone hearing the parable, he's talking to you. You're, you're part of this, this vineyard. And there's a fig tree and growing here in, in, this, in this land, but it's fruitless. What does that depict? Well, it depicts me. It depicts you. It depicts anyone Again, anyone who's listening, anyone who's hearing this, the fig tree's been growing, but it's fruitless. Well, then the caretaker, the caretaker is on the scene. Who's the caretaker? The caretaker is Jesus. And he's there to intercede. He's there to, to show mercy. Uh, he, he's there to nurture the tree. And you know what? Jesus is, is, is available to all. The mercy, the grace, the intercession of Jesus Christ is available to all. God so loved the world, everyone, that he sent his son. So Jesus, his grace is available to all and he's patient and he's merciful and he's willing to nurture. He's willing to give time for one to produce repentance, for one to come to repentance. You know, but the day is gonna come. Tower may fall, tree gets cut down. Day's coming. Now this is the immediate context that, that Jesus uh, 
was speaking of when he led into this parable, and that's producing and not producing repentance. This was what he was talking about. This is the point. Nobody's above it. Nobody's above it. Nobody's above turning from your sin. Nobody's above the necessity to repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness. Now, we might be tempted to believe that God will overlook things. God might overlook certain things. You know, really, I'm not that bad. God's not, he's not going to condemn, oh, he's not going to condemn that. He's not going to condemn me. I'm, I'm, I'm not a super sinner. I'm really not. Why, why would he? Why would he apply this thing called eternal damnation and perish? I mean, that sounds so harsh. Jesus just wouldn't judge that way. And what about those we love? My brother, my sister, my son, my daughter, grandkids, grandparents. God knows. God knows. He knows deep down. They're good people. They'll make it. They'll get in. Jesus Jesus doesn't judge. It's just, it's too hard. But what did Jesus do? Nobody, nobody is above this. Nobody is above having to turn and, and repent and implore, ask for forgiveness. Not those we dearly love, not ourselves. I mean, we cannot think ourselves above it. We're not one class of people who can look down on another and say, no, 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 you need it, not me. Now, we might be tempted to compare ourselves to others and say those kinds of things. Don't compare your righteousness with someone someone else's wickedness. I can't do that. We might be under the impression we are better than them. We're better than them. We're better than those people. We're the Judeans. They're the Galileans. But in the eyes of God, no respecter of persons, we all must produce. We all must produce repentance. Now, what did Jesus do? He judged He judged the Judeans who had cast their judgment on the Galileans. Jesus judged them. He judged all. All are in need of this. And he cautioned them, you're not above it. You are not above repentance. He brought up up the Judeans. Don't look down on someone else. You cannot think yourself better. You have sinned too. And then he called all to repent. Repent or perish. Unless you repent, that's that's what happens. And those are not my words. They're not my words. These These are the words of Jesus, which lots of people do not want to hear. They do not want to repeat. They want to deny that Jesus even said these kinds of things or or had this type of ministry. But not only did Jesus say these words, you must repent or perish, he repeated them. Repetition is emphasis. It's like putting it in bold, capital letters, italicizing. It's important. It's crucial. Why? It's crucial to life. 
It means the difference between eternal life and eternal death. The words of Jesus, they're not words of condemnation. A lot of people see him that way. Well, he's condemning me. No, no, no. It's not words of condemnation. These are not words of, you're going to hell. No, they're words of invitation to just the opposite. This is a loving invitation. You do not need to perish. No, no, come on. Jesus is lovingly inviting. Lovingly inviting. Stop looking down on others. Don't do that. You call them uneducated, uncultured, unrefined, whatever. See your own need. This is Jesus. He's saying, see your own need. And you can be assured of eternal life before that last day comes. And then he gives the parable where it shows he's offered patience. And he's offering intercession. Hey, the tree doesn't need to be cut down. No, let's give it time. This is the patience of Jesus Christ. This is the love, the grace that is extended to all those who have never truly turned their hearts to him. He is, I'm giving you time. And that's, that is a picture throughout Scripture, the patience and the long-suffering of God Almighty. Jesus represents that. Oh, I'll nurture. No, we're not going to cut it down. We just don't know the day. And I want to ask you, is he nurturing you this morning? Now, I'd say a good many of you can probably say you've done what's been asked by Jesus. You've turned, you've repented. But some of you may have, may have not truly, truly come to that. You may have not truly seen your need, you might still be fooling yourself thinking, uh, I'm good. It's okay. Jesus, he wouldn't be that harsh. Don't fool yourself. And even if you've turned to Christ, even if you have turned, there are times, there are times, you might get tempted to think that's not a big deal. He will overlook that. For me, for my kid, whoever. And maybe you just need to feel some of his nurturing today and, and turn and just say, you know, Jesus, I, I got to repent for that because you've called all. So, as we close, I just invite you to stand right now and if there's any here, any here, regardless of where you've been, how long you've, you've walked with Christ, or if not at all, you need to turn something over to him today. You need to say, Lord, it's my son, it's my daughter. I've been fooling myself really need the truth I want to pray that they would turn to you or Lord it's me I've been fooling myself I need to turn whatever it might be we can pray and let's pray let us pray if you need to do exactly what Jesus said 
you must repent. It's his invitation. It's not mine. It's his invitation, his words. And uh, you, you, you can stand in your seat if you want someone to join you with prayer. You're free to come down to these altars. There's no one here. Let me just say, we're not saying we're better than you. It's just to join you in prayer. Two hearts and faith. No looking down. You know, we're all in this, we're all in the same place in the eyes of God. So as, as I pray, if you want to come forward, you want to pray at your seat, that's fine. What, what your heart leads you to. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word and your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness and your patience, your long-suffering. God, you're a God of long-suffering and patience, and we're delighted with that. We have your son, Jesus Christ, the nurturer, the tender, the, the one who would make intercession for us and say, no, no, give him time. Today's the day, God. You've been patient with me. You've been patient with me. You've been patient. And I've waited, and I've waited. And this thing has been churning in me. And I need to turn it over to you. I need to turn myself around. I need to repent. What I've been holding on to has been wrong. And it's been a lie. And it's been false. I got to see you for who you are. The one true God who wants my life. And he wants me to turn to you. And so God, I do that this morning. Lord, I pray that. And if there's anyone else in this room praying that, God... Smile upon them, receive them, receive their genuine heart as they turn. God, and just, your word says you wash away the sin. You receive our, our tender, sincere, our humble repentance. God, any heart in here, anyone who's for the very first time saying these, these kinds of words, I need to turn to you and turn away from what I thought was the truth. Meet him today, God. Bless him today, God. And help us, Lord. Help us, God. Help us be people who would see what Jesus did and want to know what he did so we can say what he would do. Thank you, God. In your hands, I just commit every single heart, soul here, anyone joining us online, that you would bless them, you'd hear their prayer, you would be their intercessor, and you would keep them. Watch over them. Bring us back, God. We love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus, Jesus' name, Father. Amen. 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 Lord bless you as you go if you need prayer. I mean, I mean if you need prayer for anything, healing, frustration, anything. These altars are open. We have elders here who would anoint you with oil, pray with you, and join you in your faith. God bless you.